You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My very special guest this morning is Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Waddell. On June 5th, 1967, then Captain Wayne Waddell was shot down over North Vietnam. He would spend the next five years and eight months as a prisoner of war. I am excited to have as my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Waddell. Colonel, welcome to the show, sir. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Colonel, if you would, please, sir, just very briefly tell us about where you born and raised and your journey to become a pilot in the United States Air Force. I was born over in Bremen, Georgia. Okay. Georgia Tech took Air Force ROTC where I was commissioned into the reserve with the hopes and expectation of going to pilot training. But I had to wait for a year, so I worked at Lockheed here in Marietta. Then I went on active duty in uh, June of 57. Did the usual thing out at Randolph and went to primary pilot training in Bainbridge, Georgia. Had to fly the T-37 with the first group of uh, Air Force pilots and train in a jet in, in primary. And then I went to Laredo flying the T-33 and got my well, Rio, Texas, obviously, and got my wings uh, flying the T-33. And I came back to Georgia down in Valdosta, Moody Air Force Base, and went through the advanced interceptor training in F-86L. I stayed there as an instructor until that program closed down. I was transferred to Craig Air Force Base in Selma, Alabama, where I was an academic and flight line instructor for about four years. Before I went to the University of Southern California to get a uh, master's degree in R&D management. And that's where I found out that I was on my way to Southeast Asia to fly up 105. Okay, Wayne, go ahead. Okay. What's the next question? Okay, I don't know who's banging on their phone, but uh, anyway, uh, where did you gotten with uh, telling your story, Wayne? I got the orders, uh, as I said, while I was in Southern California. When I finished school there in August of 66, I went up to the survival school. Uh, Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington State, and then to Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada to check out me up 105. I finished up there uh, on the end of February and had about 30 days to relocate my family and get settled and went off to floor at the end of March. Went to Jungle Survival School in the Philippines Got to Cockley, uh, Thailand. Uh, was welcomed aboard by a quarter ops officer 
and the fellow became my flight commander. And they, they made my day by informing me that the 354th Track Fighter Squadron had the highest loss rates of any squadron in Southeast Asia. <laughs> so I, I pondered my good luck. Yeah. Uh, and then about uh, two weeks later, or so, went up for the welcome aboard by the wing commander, who told us that in the two years of operation there, the statistics showed that in your one year or 100 mission tour, whichever came first, there was a 50-50 chance of being shot down. And if you were shot down, there was a 50-50 chance of being picked up. Now, was this... Uh, session, of course, in statistics. Was this basically... I figured out right away. Those were not encouraging odds. Were these basically uh, missile shoot-downs or anti-aircraft? Anti-aircraft, missile, and MiG. Hmm. So you uh, you could take your choice of how you wanted to get shot down, huh? <laughs> well, you didn't always have a choice. Yeah, I, I think Pete has figured it out and come I back and joined us. Choice. Uh, Wayne, I think Pete has Pete figured it out and come back. Okay, well, if Pete's not there, then we'll go on with... Uh, so it was any aircraft that got your plane? Yes, mine was any aircraft. We, yeah. were, on, we were on a target up on the uh, Northeast Railroad, about 35, 40 miles northeast of Hanoi. And we rolled in over what was the best gun site in North Vietnam. We knew this from, from being up there numerous times. Okay, come on. Pete, Pete, we got it under control. Uh, Wayne and I are just talking, and so you have a question for uh, Wayne, Pete? Yeah, can you hear me now? We can hear you fine. I was going to finish that one thought. Very good. When I came down, I came down right in the target area, and in fact, I was within the ring of gun sites around it. And I learned over the next 24 hours that it was operated by a regular Chinese Army. Wow. BLF. Okay, uh, Wayne, Pete. Oh, that's why they were so good, I think. Wayne, Pete has okay, rejoined Pete, us. Ready. Okay, sir. Very good. Uh, on your first mission, tell me about your first mission that you flew. Well, the very first mission was kind of an area orientation. My flight commander took me out. We flew down around the DMZ and uh, up into what we call Package 1. North Vietnam is divided into packages starting at the DMZ, 1, 2, 3, 6, which is divided to A and B. Those that was Hanoi and Haiphong. The Navy had 6A Haiphong and the Air Force had 6B with Hanoi. But the first mission was just, you know, to get acquainted with uh, my second mission was a more interesting. I went out with a fellow who uh, later would be awarded the Medal of Honor for a mission about a month before I got there. Wow. And uh, and we were out doing just some recce on a Sunday afternoon, and they called and said, we got reports of some lighters, little boats down here in the river. Did you check them? And said, sure, and we slung down, and he peeled down, and I'm just following watching him. And sure enough, there are all these folks, hundreds of them. 
he opens up with a gun and goes down. He pulls up, and I figure, okay, this is my chest. So I tilt it down, and just as I started to pull the trigger, he rolled back in in front of me. <laughs> I came really close to shooting down the bottle of water winner. But the good news was, the good news was when he did that, it caused me to pull up to the left, and I missed a whole stream of Zoo 24 come by that would have just nailed me right there. Wow. But what? It would, have short, it would have been a short tour. Yeah, that was the first time you uh, encountered any aircraft fire, wasn't it? Yeah. You've heard the expression, being shot at focuses your attention. That's an understatement. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Uh, I, I know you already got it to being shot down, but on your eighth mission over lower North Vietnam, you were diverted to Hanoi for the first time. Tell me about right. the first time you went to downtown Hanoi. <laughs> that, that was an eye-opener. Uh, of course, I've been around there for well, 10 days or so by this time. and I sat around listening to the to the old guys talking about their missions when they'd come back and things they'd done or whatever. I was pretty sure that it wasn't a lot of fun up there, but <laughs> I had no idea. We, we went up on this area on the Chinese Railroad on that mission. And <clears throat> Karat, uh, another base in Thailand, flew up 105, happened to be in a target in, in the same journal area at the, about the same time. And in a clever bit of planning from somebody's part, they only used one radio channel to operate in 6B. So there were about 40, 40-something airplanes all on the same radio channel being shot at and hollered. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> and it, it, it was, uh, what's that old saying? Uh, a goat roping, <laughs> hurting cash. But when I, when I got back, my flight commander called me in personally, and we had a little set to him, and he explained to me that my job was to listen to him <laughs> and nobody else. <laughs> and from then on, I learned to recognize his voice. That sounds like a, a, a circus almost up there, that many people on the radio. Um, oh, it was. I mean... it was. Within about a week. Somebody smarted up and gave each one of us our own radio channel. Well, there we go. That sounds better. Now, uh, on your faithful 47th mission when you were shot down, you call it your 46 and a half mission. Uh, Correct. I know, yeah, I know you were rolling in on your target. Your thud, your F-105 Thunder Chief took a hit. And... Uh, Tell us about uh, being hit, and then you had to bail out, and I want the folks to know about what you went through when you bailed out. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I had been hit by uh, any aircraft a couple of times in the past, and this time when I felt the hit just as I released the bomb just before, I, I knew it was there, but it, it didn't make a whole lot of difference having had the experience. But... When I applied the afterburner to accelerate and get out of dodge as quickly as possible, the airplane just did an immediate flip and, and, and rolling at the same time. And I remember I yanked it out of afterburner and the thought went through my head, boy, that'd be a heck of a ride at Coney Island. 
<clears throat> it came back up level, and I again went to the afterburner, and this time it just started tumbling and flipping and going. So the instrument panel was breaking up. I had I didn't couldn't see anything. The lights all on, and when I tried to look out, I couldn't see out because of the flames all around the airplane. And well, I thought better better get out of here. And I pulled the handles, canopy went off, and I vaguely remember seat moving up and firing. And at that point, I grayed out completely, blacked out. And, in fact, it was so distinct, I thought I was dead. I remember saying to myself, well, he waited too long. Clever guy. And then, uh, within a second or so, it takes for the automatic equipment. As, as the seat goes out, it pulls out of the airplane, it pulls the lanyard that opens the seat belt, and then there's a, another device that pushes the seat away from it. And as it goes away, it pulls the ripcord for the parachute to open. And all that is a two-second process. And in that two seconds, I relive my life, literally. Things that I never, I wouldn't have remembered during any other time. And then <clears throat> all of a sudden, by the time I decided I was dead, I started feeling heat. I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm in trouble now. <laughs> but about that time, my sensation started coming back, and I realized the heat was the, the my airplane had impacted and was burning. And then I was afraid I'd coming down in, in the fire. And when I looked up to see where my parachute was, it, it was just starting to blossom. And as I reached for it, it collapsed, and I was sitting on the ground. Well, uh, that was about another. Yeah, Colonel, we're going to have to go. Sorry, Colonel, we're going to have to go to our first break. We'll be back in about two minutes, okay? I'll be here. All right, thank you, sir. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, I have it there, uh, uh, David. Colonel, when you punched out, from the time you punched out and landed was only about three seconds. You were that close to the ground, weren't you? That's what it seemed like. It, wow. It happened mighty quickly. Yeah, and I know That's that you, you were shot down by Chinese soldiers and you were captured by Chinese soldiers. And from what I heard, they gave you a choice of where you wanted to go to remain a POW. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was actually captured by some militia people who came over and got me, but they turned me over to the Chinese right away. Mm-hmm. And All right. they took me, they took me to their headquarters and brought in a fellow that they introduced as the commandant of the army that was there. <clears throat> and he wanted to ask me a lot of questions. And this was my first test of a code of conduct. I went name, rank, serial number, date of birth. And he's going to ask some more questions. And I went through a little routine with him that I would My commander had told me that uh, I couldn't answer those those kind of questions. And so I had to politely, respectfully decline. And <clears throat> that's when they said, "Well, if you'll cooperate, uh, we'll treat you'll be treated well. We'll take you to Beijing." Well, in 1957, as far as I'm concerned, Beijing and the moon were about the same distance from the, from the Earth. Yeah. And so I, I said, I'd like to go to to Hanoi. He looked at me, and he got this grimace look on his face, shook his head. About 24 hours later, I knew why he did. But uh, they did treat me well while I was there. Uh I, they tried to do some photographing and some other stuff, and they took me to, well, they took me around the next day to about six or eight gun sites. I figured it made up that gun, you know, placement. And there was always one guy had the little red book a mile, would stand out front, and he'd read from it. I called him the cheerleader. So he would read, and then they'd throw up a cheer, and everybody would get excited. And, and then I'll break out their cameras and make my picture. So, hoping like heck that somewhere they'd get out because with my close call, I was pretty sure that nobody thought I was alive. And so I I did not resist the photos, I guess is the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. And then that afternoon, they took me on a little jump to another large encampment and I had another little encounter with them. Uh, wanting me to do things, but... Uh, Overall, I can't complain about the treatment with the Chinese. And then that night, about uh, dark, they turned me over to the North Vietnamese. And uh, I was blindfolded and my arms tied behind me. And I rode in a truck a little ways and they put me in the back of a jet helicopter and flew me into Hanoi. And I was moved out again to, to a truck and taken into the big prison. Wallo, the we nicknamed as the Hanoi Hilton. That's when all the mm-hmm. fun started. Okay, you uh, you were at several detention centers. Uh, I think one was called the Zoo, the New Guy Village, right. Little Las Vegas, Camp Faith, Utility Hall. 
and the plantation. There must have been several around that area. Well, the big prison about town uh, had several of those things, like New Guy Village was one section there where just about everybody went for the initial interrogation. And that's where the welcoming committee was less than friendly. Once you got through with them, you moved out, or I did anyway, to another section, which was a small dungeon area. That's the one we call Heartbreak Hotel. And after about 10 days in there, uh, I was moved to another section of the prison that we call Little Vegas. And I was in, I was in one of those cells called the Golden Nugget, living with a Navy commander who was in really bad shape. And <clears throat> then after I moved from him, that's when I went to the zoo, which was another, uh, facility entirely out at the uh, kind of a suburb of Hanoi, which had been a French movie studio. Huh. And after after three years there, we just went, we went to one we call Camp Fate, which was part of a regular army barracks about a little further out uh, from Hanoi, about 20 miles. And this is the one that was near Sante when the raid took place in November of 1970. With that uh, prompted, prompted the Vietnamese pulled all back into the big prison in another big area that we call Camp Unity. Yeah, the, the, so, uh, uh, the guy that took your photos, he was from East Germany, is that correct? That's correct. I've been there about two weeks, and uh, they called me in one morning and asked me if I could live with another American. And before I thought, well, my first reaction was, oh yeah, really, but then I remembered in Chicago too, they taught us to be careful that Russians are Caucasians and they can speak English and blah blah, so I gave him the, oh yeah, yeah, that might be nice. And so he hung on around a little bit and finally told me that I was going to be taken, this was a Saturday morning, he said, on Monday morning you're going to be taken to a place to be tested. He said, I'll go along. He said, if you cooperate and show good attitude, we'll go okay. But if you don't cooperate, show bad attitude, I cannot help you even guarantee your life. Huh. The first night when I was there, uh, they had read me, or played for me, excuse me, two confession tapes, one by Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Ronnie Reiser and one by Navy Commander Jerry Denton. And you could tell when it played that they were done under coercion, like different thanked them for the for the nice cup of tea the third night he was there. So you know, you, you put that together. So I figured I'm going and they had told me, You will make confession. I figured that's where I was going to scan to record and be be tested. And so over that weekend I did a lot of soul searching and figured out what I what I could do and wouldn't, and how, what line I would not go beyond. So when we went out the next day and went out there and got out of the truck and stepped up and he took off my blindfold and there stands these two guys and I'm standing on the right patty out there in the middle of nowhere. And I realized once again, somebody up there is looking out for me. Because as it turns out, the pictures that you're talking about, one of them particularly 
one sequence of the video part was on a program in East German TV the next spring. And the U.S. Air Force monitored this 24 hours a day, and they copied it off, sent it to my family, and that's how everybody knew that I was alive and a prisoner. Wow. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Colonel, that you had a choice, basically, to go to China as a POW or to North Vietnam. You chose North Vietnam, but you had talked to one pilot that went to China. Uh, tell us a little about what he went through in China. This was uh, Air Force Captain Phil Smith, and he was shot down by an F-104 when his nav system went bad and he strayed over Hainan Island back in September of 65. And when we came home, I went over and introduced myself to him. And I said, I almost met you about seven years ago. And he smiled and he said that you made the right choice. And he lived by himself for seven and a half years. Solitary confinement, uh, half years. That's right. That's a long time to be alone. Wow. Uh, that's incredible. Absolutely. What, what a guy. And you mentioned the... Uh, Navy a commander that was with you for a while that was in really, really bad shape. Did he make it out? Yes. Uh, he had been shot down about uh, 10 days after me. Excuse me. <clears throat> and when they moved me in with him, uh, it was his, I think it was his fifth day, he was laying on a bunk, uh, which was a big bedboard, as we call it, with a sawhorse down to prop up one of his legs. He had a, a kind of a wicker arrangement on his right arm, running from his shoulder out to his hand. And <clears throat> honestly, when I saw it, oh, they had told me, but when they said, go over there's another uh, prisoner uh, who needs a little help. <laughs> and I looked at him, and my first reaction was, they put me in here to take the blame when he dies. He was he was in that bad of shape, in my view. And for about two weeks, he would come in and out with consciousness, with hallucinations, all kinds of things. And as it turns out, it was probably the best thing for me at the time, because I've been there just long enough to start feeling sorry for myself. You know, why yeah. me and blah, blah, blah. Now, I could see somebody was in a lot worse shape and somebody needed help but gave me a different focus. And as he recovered, I saw what determination a human being can have and what they can do as a result. And as he came back to reality, so to speak, we, we had some really good times and discussions together. Uh, I was moved out after 100 days and he spent the next 25 months in solitary because he was uh, a commander of one of the more senior officers. But as luck would have it, when we came around to coming home, we were put back together and he came out walking right behind us. You still there, Pete? I think Pete cut out again. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, we'll yeah, I I heard him. Uh, I think he's. I, I don't know what Pete's problem is, but anyway, uh, okay. So the commander came back. Okay, Colonel, you still with me? Yeah, it's yeah, you. That, 
It's you. Yeah, that went I, out I lost you again for some reason. I want to ask you this, by the way. You were you were shot down uh, on July fifth, sixty seven, and two other F one O pilots were shot down. Did they make it out? No, uh, I was not aware of that at the time. Uh, one of the first fellows that I lived with after uh, Porter, the Navy commander, was a 105 pilot from from uh, Karat, and he told me that a friend of his had been shot down on the same day, which meant that he had to be one of the on, the, on my mission. And then after I got home. I learned that the other pilot was seen hanging limp in the parachute. But mm. they thought that, but that my, my roommate's friend was alive for a period of time. The Vietnamese put him out as dying in captivity about a week later. Well, what, what you guys were unimaginable. Uh, Carl, we're going to have to take our second break. We'll be back okay. in about minutes, okay? Okay, no, I'm here. Thank you, sir. Hi, I'm Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, talking to you about antique car insurance. Uh, in this hobby uh, that I've been part of for years, not all insurance companies and insurance coverage is the same. I would suggest that you call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com to find out some information about some of the best antique car insurance you can get, such as agreed value uh, insurance for your classic car. Again, if you're when you get ready to to uh, insure your classic classic antique or even your street ride, call J C Taylor Insurance or visit jctaylor.com. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the program with Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Wydell. Uh, know you are a POW, and I don't think many people know about this, Colonel. Tell us about the Cuban program. Well, when I got to the zoo... Uh, in late 67, 
moved into uh, an area we call the annex, and that's where I was with the the fellow who uh, told me about the other shoot-down. And then a few months later, I was moved, as we call it, across the wall to the main camp into a building that uh, was adjacent to the one where... Cuban, as we call it, and we nicknamed him Fidel, had some prisoners. He had started out by running a total submission program, and the first three or four people were put into it. He literally beat them with his fist until in the face and kicking and whatever the rest of their bite. So they would agree to do whatever he told them to do, and uh, supposedly what any Vietnamese told them to do. And over several months, they got up to about 20 people in the program. The early ones told the later ones to take, take enough of the beating to make it look good, so to speak, and then, and then surrender, which is the key word. And <clears throat> unfortunately, one guy uh, that he started beating on, uh, it went too far one way or the other. Uh, this guy became insane, literally, at the point that he would stand there when they would hit him in the face with a rubber sandal. He wouldn't blink an eye. And he refused to eat. Uh, they had seven of them had to hold him down while two more force fed him. And he accused all of them of being a ghost of American pilots who had come to take him off to wherever. Finally, the Vietnamese started taking him out to the shock treatments, but it didn't do any good, and he was moved out, and we learned before we came home that he had died a while there. And we never let the Vietnamese forget what they had done to him. And I think that was probably the the straw that the the Vietnamese allowed Fidel to, to go home. Yeah. Colonel, you got a you got a canary in the background? No, but there is a bird out here chirping around somewhere. <laughs> is, is, is it distracting? Uh, yeah, I can I can hear him. Uh, we'll get through it and everything. But that's that's the first time I've interviewed a, a lieutenant colonel and a bird at the same time. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, no, I, I, I'll go to another room. guys went through this guy, Fidel. It was pretty horrible. I, you know, I don't want to get into the gore and everything, but I think people need to know this. What kind of a torture were you subjected to by Fidel? Oh, I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the Cuban program, luckily. I was just next door to it. Okay. Uh, my, my most serious, uh, I guess you'd say, experience, other than my own personal thing, was lying in my cell one day listening to the fellow I just described across a wall. He's probably 25 to 30 feet from me, begging to die. Wow. And there's nothing you can do. This but, guy, yeah, 
this guy Fidel had a, also a drinking problem, didn't he? I don't know. Uh, there, when he was allowed to go home, there was kind of a party, I guess you'd say, and some of the guys that could see what was happening said that there was a lot of beer out there. I, that was a report to me. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd heard that he was often drunk when he beat the pilots, but now it's interesting to note, and I want you to tell the listeners about this, tell us about how the North Vietnamese commander got to work, and tell us how Fidel got to work. Mm, you have to clear that. What do you mean, got to work? Okay. What do you mean? Well, when they when they reported there for work every morning, the Vietnamese commander rode a bicycle. And how did Fidel arrive at work? Uh, you you're ahead of me on that one. I don't know. There, they did okay. a lot of them ride bicycles, but that's I never true. Saw, and, yeah, I never saw either of them coming or going. Yeah, the Cuban uh, Fidel that beat our pilots and everything, he was chauffeured by car to the prison every day. That, I'm not surprised. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, when you, if caught communicating with your fellow POWs are guilty of some kind of violation, uh, you were told that you would uh, be allowed to live alone. What did that mean? <laughs> That, that was their tactful way of saying you're going to live by yourself. <laughs> you're going to be in solitary. Solitary confinement, okay? Right, uh, right. Uh, did you ever have to do that? No, conveniently. Uh, my impression was that if you, as one of the interrogators used to call it, keep your nose clean, didn't violate any of the camp regulations. Mm-hmm. And which communications was a big one. And once you were allowed to live with somebody, you continued to until you you uh, broke one of those regulations. And as you implied there, communications was a big one. Uh, they, uh, they took that one very seriously. And for the, probably the first two years, two and a half uh, at least, if you were caught communicating, the minimum punishment after being pummeled around a bit to the bed in leg irons on half rations for a month. Yeah, tell us about the tap code. <laughs> that that was the biggest morale factor we had the whole time. I didn't learn about it for about six months. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, one of the early Air Force officers, 105 pilot, had learned about it at Air Force Survival School. And <clears throat> several years before, and he didn't think any more about it until he got over there, popped back in his mind. Conveniently, he told some of the other people, and the word started spreading, and it became a priority item to any new guys to get the word to them. It, it's, uh, at first blush, seems complex. Once you start using it, it's very easy, 
And the big advantage is so many variations. You can tap to get these sounds, or you can move a straw through a crack to, to the same pattern, or you can wave something white across an opening, uh, can sweep in the code. Some people, even when they wash the clothes outside, would snap them out to get the water out in a code pattern. Hmm. Uh, some of the senior guys had the most imaginative that I never learned to do, but it was a variation called a cough code. A cough, hack, sneeze, sniff, and spit. <laughs> <laughs> to do the five five uh, lines. And, uh, and, and, and when you hear one of them saying something, it's amusing. <laughs> Tell us about how in the world you could talk through 12 to 14 inches of concrete. That was probably the most surprising thing to me. Uh, <clears throat> when, uh, when I moved over, as I said, on the main uh, part of the zoo, next door to the to the Cuban program. My common wall was with a Navy uh, lieutenant commander who had been there since September of 65. He's the one that really got me into the tapping. And one day, he, he was good, is what I'm saying. He, he was pro. And one day, he asked me, he said, can you talk to the wall? <laughs> and, and I tapped back to him, I said, I don't think so. <laughs> so he educated me. We had all had these porcelain cups. You put the flat part of the cup against the wall, opposite where your other communicator is going to be, or as close as. And if you want to talk, you throw your voice into the back of the cup. On the other side, to listen, he's got the open end of the cup against the wall with his ear against the flat bottom. And the ver reverberations work like a charm. It's as clear as talking on a telephone. <laughs> God bless American soldiers. I, I tell you, that is great. Amen. It is. Okay, on November 21st, 1970, the famous Asante prison raid happened. Um, right. We didn't get POWs out of there. They've been moved, but your, your uh, treatment really improved after that raid. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as, as I had mentioned earlier, we were at this uh, post near there. We heard all the excitement going on. And one of the guys I was with, uh, 20 guys at the time, said, oh, they're coming to get us. <laughs> we said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, obviously, as it turned out, the Vietnamese were scared big time, and they moved us back to the big prison downtown and put us in large groups in large cells 50 odd and we replaced we figured out later on south vietnamese prisoners and some political prisoners that had been back here and the south vietnamese were the ones that before they left uh, passed on the word of what had actually happened and the i won't say the treatment got any better uh right away because the Vietnamese were still pretty apprehensive. They they ran a tight schedule. And uh, there were some episodes where, <laughs> well, I guess the simplest thing is so when we got together, being military people, we'll start being organized. 
And uh-huh. once we started getting organized, then the leaders said, well, you know, maybe we should be the ones that are in charge here. And we tried a couple of things that they did, and the Vietnamese responded right quickly to let us know that it was their camp and they were going to run it their way. <laughs> well, that's so, not too surprising. Uh, Colonel, we're going to go to our last break, and we'll be right back. Uh, tell us about the upgrade of your food and things like that, and when the uh, Christmas bombing of 72 acted, uh, acted. We will be back in about two minutes, okay? Okay, I'm here. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual, family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, we're back with Colonel Wayne Waddell, uh, five years, eight months as a prisoner in North Vietnam. Uh, you said they started upgrading your food somewhat. Tell us about some of the soup that you had. <laughs> well, the standard meal was uh, soup and rice, uh, occasional uh, little French loaves of bread. And the uh, soup, uh, the one that uh, was most common, we call standard green wheats. Uh, it's something between a, a morning glory and a, a, pe- a peanut vine that's hollow. It's actually tasty, and uh, I eat it back here. We saute it with some garlic. It's delicious. Really? We, al- we also had uh, weeds that we called sewer greens, and you get a rough idea of what they might have been, seaweed, and... Uh, uh, we ate uh, a lot of cabbage uh, in the soup at times. So, yeah, I learned to like soup, and luckily I like rice. There you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm a rice eater, too, after being in Vietnam. Also, uh, the Christmas bombing started in 1972. B-52 started bombing around there. Uh, you guys knew something was going on, did, did you not? Well, when the bombing of North Vietnam was when Nixon restarted that in May of 72, the Vietnamese got really uh, apprehensive given that the Sante raid had taken place. And they moved 200 odd of us up onto the Chinese border to a camp that we called Dog Patch because it was so far out in the sticks. <laughs> and 
we didn't know uh, about the bombing up there because we didn't have the camp radio and had no head on and all the things that had been down there before uh, with the propaganda. The only clue we had was at Christmas time, one of the officers told one of the guys, the reason we didn't get any coffee is because the trucks bringing it were bombed. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, but somehow, uh, somebody picked up, I guess, from one of the, the guards or something, the word B-52. So uh-huh. we figured something big time had happened. Uh, but we didn't know the details till we got back uh, when they brought us all back into Hanoi uh, about the time of the settlement that took place in, in Paris. And the guys that had stayed in Hanoi told us about all the excitement that had happened. Wow. Uh, I think the B-52 is going north. Uh, brought them back to the table and got you guys out of there. Uh, now, you yeah, were... Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. You were in the uh, uh, the PLW releases started in February of 1973, and you were in the second group that came out on March 4th. Tell us Correct. about boarding that C-141 American cargo <laughs> plane. Well, we uh, had been loaded up tw- uh, about 20 of us to these little buses and carted across town to the airport, and we pulled out on the ramp there, and we saw these airplanes. The United States Air Force, and our flag, and I'm, I have trouble describing because as I looked around, there were a couple of, uh, I mean, there were some pretty regularly some uh, wet eyes and some tight throats and people looking that it was a real, real thrilled to see that this may really happen. And the, as we, we were there lined up in the order of our capture, and that was our release order, and as they called your name, we went out and reported, in my case, I reported to an Air Force colonel that I, Dewey Wayne Waddell, has returned to duty. And he returned my salute and a fellow uh a crewman on, on the airplane walk you over to the airplane you're going to come out on. And I, and I had worked for Lucky, you remember, before I went in, and I knew people who had been working on the C-141. And when I started up that ramp, I said not very flippantly that I could smell the red clay of North Georgia, and I knew I was headed on. <laughs> oh, and... and... You saluted, and yet you were free, but you guys considered yourself reporting back for duty. That's amazing. Correct. Unbelievable. When you uh, took off, the uh, pilot of that C-141 <laughs> finally announced, uh, he said, people, we are out of Vietnamese airspace. Is that when the cheers went up? That, well, on my airplane, that's right. Uh, some, some of them apparently started cheering when they said feet wet, which meant you were out over the ocean. Uh-huh. For my group, we decided we'd wait a minute to be sure. <laughs> and and I've, I've said several times, again, maybe a little flippantly, but I think the airplane may have gone up a, a few feet time when everybody jumped up. 
<laughs> I, I can imagine. Uh, on the uh, C-141, uh, you were asked if you wanted some juice. They would serve you some juice and all you guys wanted to do. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, let's so we'd like some juice or whatever. <laughs> well, that'd be nice, but how about a beer? And they said, also, we can't, we, we don't have any beer. Said, Why not? Well, we weren't sure if you could drink it or not. <laughs> One thing I didn't mention, we made a stop on the way to the airport, and they've served us some sugar cookies and a bottle of warm beer. We told the, the Vietnamese treat us better than y'all did. <laughs> <laughs> they they also uh, some of our guys asked for cigarettes and they give them and they told us later on that they weren't supposed to smoke around us because they didn't know if we could handle cigarettes or what and it was kind of a puzzle to me because at the second group they should have known from the first group what we could and couldn't do but they still were not too sure whether we were going to be real human beings or some kind of freaks on the way home. Good Lord. Okay, when you got to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, uh, tell us about the dining room. <laughs> well, first thing, let me take, well, okay, I'll do that later. The dining room is, uh, they came around announcing that the dining hall was open and went down and I think they probably had the most diverse, comprehensive spread of food I've ever seen anywhere. It ranged from eggs and grits and pancakes and so on to salads and meats and steaks and ham and pies and cookies and ice cream. Uh, one of the guys ate two dozen uh, eggs <laughs> and promptly went upstairs and threw them all up. Uh, I went by and got... Um, a steak and potatoes and slaw and stuff and went over and took about three bites and was full. Uh, none of us were accustomed to really rich, heavy food after eating all that soup and rice. So, a change of pace that uh, we weren't ready for. Yeah. You received your promotion to Lieutenant Colonel Flowers. That's correct. I didn't know about it. In fact, when I got on the airplane and they put a sticker on it, it had Lieutenant Colonel. And I called the, the flight nurse over and I said, I think you made a mistake on this. She said, that's what I got. I said, okay. So huh. I found I found out when I got to Clark that I had been promoted. Okay. And, sir, you did report back for duty? And you uh, served out your uh, career with the United States Air Force. Tell us a little bit about what you did before retirement. Well, the first thing I did was uh, to go to uh, Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama, as a means of trying to get caught up on what had happened for six years. Plus, it was close enough to Atlanta, where my family was at the time, and my mother near there. And I stayed there on the faculty, and then a friend from uh, Southern Cal class was at the Pentagon, and he arranged to bring me up to work with him in uh, the Department of Defense. So I did that for three years, 
then I came to Dobbins here in Marietta, uh, to 14th Air Force, and worked, uh, had some active duty uh, programs and, and worked with a lot of reservists. So I retired in October of 87. Very good, sir. I remember uh, when I interviewed you, I, I said, well, okay, you're retired now and, and you're not working. What are you doing? And here's your comments right here. Well, I enjoy being lazy. Uh, I play a little <laughs> play a little golf, I pound on the computer, life is good. Colonel Wydell, I would imagine, sir, after five years and eight months as a prisoner of war in North Vietnam and surviving that, life has to be really, really good. I can't find many things to complain about. <laughs> All right, Colonel, we'll be closing here in just a minute. Uh, I have an exceptional guest next week also, uh, Captain Brian Settles. Uh, he flew 199 uh, missions as an F-4 fighter pilot in Vietnam, uh, one, one of the few uh, black pilots that we had, great guy. Would you like to say anything at all about your career or North Vietnam, what you went through uh, before we have to um, get off the air? Well, the one thing I'd like to say was where I started there at Clark and Switch. But when we arrived at Clark about 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, there must have been somewhere between 2,500, 3,000 people out on the route cheering and welcome home. And I had heard in movies and things about feeling emotion. And I thought, well, that's neat stuff. But that day, I realized that emotion can be felt. It, it was just like a, a warm cloud coming out over us. Wow. And then when I left, when I left Clark to come home, we stopped in Hawaii in the middle of the night, like 2 o'clock, with about a 1,000 people out there cheering and going on again. And one of the biggest problems I had and most of the others have acknowledged is being able to thank the American people for the welcome that we got, especially compared to what we heard that the guys down south had to experience when they came home when they were yeah. not welcome. But we like, we hope that, that our motto of return with honor, that we were able to do that. We think so, and we hope the American people do too. I think you did, sir. As a matter of fact, I know you did. Uh, uh, absolute amazing story, Colonel. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I hope that this helps people remember uh, the cost of freedom. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.